Okay, if everyone could stand for the reading of the word. So I know the bulletin said we're going to be reading uh, John chapter 20, verses 1 through 23, but Pastor Mike would like to shrink that just a little bit. So I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version, uh, verses 19 through 23. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews... Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them And said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Diane. Good morning, everyone. Good to see your beautiful faces this morning. Um, We are in a short series in the month of January, and this will be the last part of it where we're talking about our identity, who who we are as the church especially. And so we've talked about that we are family, we are disciples, we are servants, and then this is the last one this week, and it's we are missionaries. And I don't know, I wasn't ever in the military. I missed out on that, but others were. And I know if you're in the military, you probably got sent on at least one mission, uh, if, even if it was just KP, right? You still, had a, you still had a duty and you had to go do it, right? Um, but I, when I had my first kind of ministry gig, which was when I was 17 years old, fresh out of high school, and this church hired me to be the youth intern, Um, way back in 1994, yes, 30 years ago. Um, I became the youth intern, and I worked for Luke Hendricks, and he threw me into the middle school group, basically, and said, okay, you get to kind of run this thing and teach and run activities and plan youth group and games and hang out with kids and go to the fair and all this stuff. And at the end of every summer for the middle school, we would do a middle school camp out and it was usually in August and we would find a campground somewhere in the Ochicos and we would go land there with about 30 junior high kids and then just run wild over the over the Ochicos and over that campground and the coolest part of these campouts was a night game that we called Mission Impossible right so the Mission Impossible was the old TV show that the old folks remember and the young folks think of Tom Cruise which I think the first Mission Impossible movie with Tom Cruise came out like after this. So this was, this was a while back. So this game called Mission Impossible where you'd break up into two teams and it was dark and you dressed as dark as you possibly could and you're in the middle of the forest so there's no light at all. You know? You're just running through the forest, all these kids, chaotic, and we just hope that everybody makes it back uh, you know, before we take them back to their parents. And uh, this one night we were playing this game, the kids would go out and they would have to try to find a pot of gold, which was basically a coffee can with a bunch of rocks in it that were painted, spray painted gold. 
and they have to bring the gold back to the, to the camp, and there were adults out there with flashlights trying to catch them, and if they got caught, they lost. And so this one night, and, and Luke, who was the youth pastor, had left. He had to go to a training somewhere, and I was in charge. Now, there were other, like, responsible adults there, but I was in charge of, like, the teaching, the games, and all this stuff, like, what was going on? And all the kids are out there, and I'm back at the camp, and we hear this kind of commotion. All these kids are running, like, they're running away from, from the adult sponsors who are chasing them with flashlights. And this one kid, his name was Kyle, I remember, his, he was running like as, as fast as he could down this hill towards our camp, and he didn't realize that there was a barbed wire fence, you know, like a three-thing barbed wire fence in front of him. And he gets close to it, and he sees it, and he just falls. Like, he just falls flat, going, like, I don't want to hit that thing head on. And he goes under the fence, and when he comes, yeah, and when he comes back to the, to the camp, when he comes back to the fire... He's got this gash right here on his eyelid, right? I mean, like two millimeters from his eyeball. And I'm sitting there going, thank you, Lord. (laughs) You know, because this is a, like, we're way out there. It'd be a huge trip to anywhere to get help. And um, so God saved him in that. And I just said, okay, game off. Everybody back. We're finished for the night. Um, And anytime you go out on a mission, these kids went out on a mission to find this gold. It's exciting, right? It's exciting to go play a night game. It's exciting to go, to be told to go on a mission and do something daring and dangerous. But that's exactly the problem is that missions can be both exciting and pretty dangerous sometime. Now, let me take that word mission and change it into a title. And we get the word then missionary, Right? When we talk and think, though, about missionaries, we don't usually think about like special ops soldiers. We don't think about people on a mission. We think about Christians who have committed their lives to going to another country or, or to another culture, to another language group to spread the gospel. And that's certainly true. Right? This church supports many people who we call missionaries who've, who have gone to the ends of the earth, to the Middle East, to South Africa, to Europe, to Asia, to spread the gospel. But it's not the whole story, because when we read the Bible and when we listen to the words of Jesus, we will find him saying that we are all missionaries. Everyone who follows Jesus, everyone who call themselves disciples are missionaries. It's not just the super special, super spiritual, super devoted individuals that we tag with the name missionary and then send them as far away from us as we can get them. Okay? It's not those who run off to the Middle East to tell Muslims about Jesus who are missionaries. We are all, according to Jesus, missionaries. So today I want to answer the question, what is a missionary and what is our mission? And we're going to find this out in John chapter 20 the verses that Diane read, but we're going to start kind of in the middle. We're going to start with verse 21 because this is really where we get the idea that we're all missionaries. And here's what Jesus says in John 21. He's, this is the day of the, the evening of the resurrection. Jesus is in the upper room now with his disciples, and he said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And what Jesus is saying here, what he's giving to his disciples is their job description. And their job description also becomes their identity. They are sent ones. And the word missionary literally means, it's just from the Latin, all that it means is one who is sent. 
A sent one. That's what a missionary is. And here's Jesus telling his disciples, As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. You are being sent. You're a sent one. You are a missionary. Jesus was a missionary sent by his Father into the world. And as his disciples, we too, yes, all of us who claim to be his disciples, are missionaries sent by Jesus. Now, what does it mean when Jesus says, as the Father sent me, so I sent you? What does it mean that we're sent in the same way that Jesus is sent, the same way that the Father sent the Son? In other words, what is our mission, and how do we fulfill it? So what we're going to do today is kind of saturate ourselves in the Gospel of John. This is obviously the end of the Gospel of John, where John's kind of presenting to us our marching orders from Jesus. So we're going to look through the Gospel of John to really see what Jesus is saying about how he was sent. And the first thing we see is that that Jesus was sent as a representative. When he was sent, he acted as his father's representative, like an ambassador. So when an ambassador from the United States goes to another country, they're representing the interests of the United States. Not their own private interests, but the interests of the nation, the one who have sent them. So Jesus, when he comes, he says he didn't speak on his own authority. He spoke what the Father gave him. Remember, this is God himself speaking, the second person of the Trinity, the very Son of God, saying, I'm not speaking on my own authority. So here's what he says in John 8:26. He who sent me, the Father who sent me, is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. So Jesus isn't coming up with his own message. He's speaking the words of the Father. John chapter 12, verse 49 For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. So Jesus spoke what his Father told him to speak. He acted as a representative, an emissary, an ambassador. And because he's the perfect representative of God, to see him is to see the Father. To believe in him is to believe in the Father. So John 12 again, backing up a few verses, verse 44. Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. So you look at Jesus, you see the Father. You listen to Jesus, you believe in Jesus, you listen to and believe in the Father. Whatever you do with Jesus, you do with the Father. You reject him, you reject the Father. You listen to him, you listen to the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. John 5.23. And we can flip that around and say, whoever honors the Son honors the Father. So Jesus was sent as the Father's representative. And we can take from that, if we're sent in the same way that Jesus is sent, that we are called his representatives. Right? So we don't go out speaking our own words, coming up with our own ideas to tell people. We speak the words of Jesus, the words that have been given to us, that have been handed to us in the gospel. And as people respond to us, when we're living on mission, when we're speaking the gospel, they respond to Jesus and in turn to the Father. So listen to Jesus' words here. These are crazy words in John thirteen twenty. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send... It's us. Whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. You're preaching the gospel. You're on mission and people receive you. Guess who they're receiving? Jesus and his father. 
as missionaries and we're Jesus' representatives. This is, this is a huge responsibility. This is, this is a weighty task that we have on our shoulders. Well, Jesus was also sent not only as a representative, but he was sent in obedience. The Father sent the Son to carry out his mission and to follow his directions. And even though he, Jesus, is himself God, he willingly and joyfully submitted to his Father's will. So John 6, 38, Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I'm doing the will of the Father here. I'm not making this up. John 4, 34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. It's like eating to him. It's like his sustenance to do his Father's will, to do his work. John eight twenty nine. For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. The things that are pleasing to the Father is what Jesus always done. So Jesus perfectly obeyed his marching orders. He didn't miss a piece of what, his, of what his father had told him to do. And in the same way, as we carry out our mission, the one that Jesus has given to us, we are obedient when we do that to Jesus' word. And we do it not just out of duty, not just out of fear, but we do it out of love for him. We're willingly and joyfully to submit to him as we carry out his commands. John 14 Verses 23 and 24, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Love Jesus, obey him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. The very next chapter, John 15, 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. And then just a few verses later, verse 16 You did not choose me, I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So God has, Jesus has called us, he sent us. If we love him, we'll obey him, we'll obey his commandments, we'll go and we'll bear fruit, fruit that abides. And when we do that, we show Jesus our love and we show him obedience by bearing fruit. So to love Jesus is to obey him, to do what he has sent us to do. So Jesus sent into the world by the Father as representative, an obedient, perfectly obedient representative. But also in that he was sent, but he was dependent. Sent, but dependent. So in his obedience, Jesus depended on his Father for everything. Now remember, again, this is the second person of the Trinity, right? The eternal Son of God. All power is his. Yet as we saw last week, he laid that aside. He laid, his, um, he laid these things aside so that he could come and, and be born as a servant to serve us, to give his life for us, to obey his father, to come on the mission that he was sent on. He didn't seek his own ends. He didn't seek his own agenda. Rather, he sought to do things in the power that his father provided. So John chapter 5, verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. Did you know that Jesus said that? I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. My judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And as we obey Jesus, we will find it difficult. We will need help to obey Jesus. We can't do it on our own. And that makes sense for us. It doesn't make so much sense for Jesus. 
But just as Jesus was dependent upon his father, we must be dependent on Jesus. So John 15 again, verses 4 and 5. He's talking about us being, or Jesus being the vine, we're the branches. He says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. I only do what the Father tells me to do and gives me to do. And then Jesus turns to us and says, apart from me, you can do nothing unless you are vitally connected to me. We can never fulfill Jesus' mission without being connected to Jesus. And we're connected to Jesus by his spirit to receive the power necessary to do what he sent us to do. And Jesus himself was sent with power. Jesus pointed out that his father was always with him, that he never left him alone. He did not send Jesus into the world, then abandon him. John 8, 29. He who sent me, he says, is with me. He has not left me alone. And back at the baptism, when John the Baptist was baptizing Jesus, he says, I saw the Spirit coming from heaven as a dove and resting on him and remaining on Jesus. And this very Spirit is the one who empowered Jesus' earthly ministry as he went around and taught and healed and cast out demons and raised the dead. It was the Spirit at work through him. In the same way, it has never been Jesus' intention to leave us alone. He never intended to leave us as orphans. Rather, he promised to send his Spirit to empower us for the mission that he has sent us on. So John 14, I will ask the Father... This is verse 16. And he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. So Jesus himself promises, I will be with you. I will send the spirit to be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. And then in a symbolic act, back in John chapter 20, which is our text for this morning, In a symbolic act, Jesus once again promises the Holy Spirit to those he sends. So he says, as the Father sent me, I sent you. Now look at verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, this verse kind of seems odd, doesn't it? It seems a little bit out of place because has anybody read Acts chapter 2? Okay, so 50 days after the resurrection... At the Feast of Pentecost, the church is praying and the Spirit falls on the disciples as a gift of power that Jesus has promised for the entire church. And now, this is on the day of the resurrection, 50 days earlier, it seems like Jesus... Well, hold on, did Jesus give him the Spirit then or does he give him the Spirit later? Did he like give him half the Spirit here? Or, you know, what's going on here? And what I want to... What I want to try to say is that what I want to try to make clear is that I think this is kind of a symbolic promise that Jesus is giving. As he breathes on his disciples, he breathes on them. Okay, the word for spirit is the same word for breath. It's the same word for wind. It's the same thing. And, and this breath symbolizes, if you will, a new creation. So let's go all the way back to Genesis chapter 2. God takes the dust of the earth and he creates a man. And what does he do? It's the first thing he does with that man. He breathes. 
into his mouth, and the man becomes, it says, a living being. Later on, Paul will say that just in the same way, Jesus himself became a life-giving spirit. So here's God giving life, breathing it into Adam. Later on in the Old Testament, in the book of Ezekiel, we have this prophet Ezekiel, who God loved to call the Son of Man. God takes him to this valley that's filled with dry bones. A ton of bones, a lot of bones. And he asks him, Son of Man, can these bones live? And Ezekiel plays it smart and says, Well, Lord, you know. And God says to him, preach. And he begins to prophesy, begins to proclaim to these bones, just to speak. And God's spirit somehow takes these bones and puts them together. And he watches this whole army come together from these bones and and muscles and skin and everything gets put on them. And then this army is standing in front of Ezekiel. And God asks Ezekiel, can these people, can this army live? And he says, well, Lord, you know. Keep preaching. He keeps preaching. And God's Spirit comes and fills this army with life. What is dead is now alive. God takes dead things and breathes life into them. So by His breath, by His Spirit, God gives life to dead things. He gives hope when all seems hopeless. He makes a new creation. And I think what Jesus is doing here is showing His disciples that He is the one who breathed life into Adam. He breathed life into Ezekiel's army. And now He's going to bring life, breathe life into His church who is the first fruits of God's new creation. That's what we are. That's what the church is. The first fruits of God's new creation breathed in by God, the Spirit. By giving us the Spirit, Jesus gives power to his church then for the mission on which he is sending them. The Spirit is given for the purpose of mission. As the Father sent me, I'm sending you. Receive the Spirit. You're going to need it. The Spirit is given for the purpose of mission. So to not be on mission is to refuse the gift of the Spirit. Seems really harsh. But that's the picture we're being painted here. A missionless church is a spiritless church. And a spiritless church will be a missionless church. This should be sobering. This should be fairly challenging for us. Are we a people on mission? Do we have the Spirit working in us and through us and giving us power? And then finally, Jesus was sent into the world to suffer for the sake of the world. We all know that Jesus suffered for our sake. He suffered for our salvation. And because of his death, Jesus has won the forgiveness of sins. He's won eternal life for all those who believe. You all know John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And his death and resurrection has borne much fruit. So in John chapter 12, he says before his death, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if that seed dies, it bears much fruit. And he's referring to his own death, bearing much fruit. And then in the same way, we are representatives of Jesus. We're appointed to bear fruit. And that fruit will come as we, like Jesus, die to ourselves and undergo the same kind of suffering that Jesus underwent. 
So he continues saying in verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where was Jesus going? To the cross. John chapter 15, I chose you, appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So Jesus was sent to purchase forgiveness for all those who believe in him. In a similar way, we are now sent to proclaim the forgiveness of sins to all who believe. We're not going to win anybody's forgiveness. We're not going to go die on a cross and redeem the world like Jesus did. But what he has given us is that message of forgiveness, the message of eternal life that we call the gospel. So now look at John 20, verse 23, the next verse. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. And this is another one of those verses that we read and we go, hold on, what what does that mean? We don't get to forgive people, do we? But I think the meaning is fairly simple. Jesus came into the world for a specific purpose, right? John 3.17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. It's It's the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus through that, that, that the world can be saved. It's through his sacrificial work that he has purchased forgiveness for all who believe. And now he has sent his disciples into the world to proclaim that forgiveness. And often that forgiveness is proclaimed through our suffering to whomever will hear and believe. And if we disobey Jesus... If we withhold the gospel by not going, by not speaking, by not proclaiming, then we are withholding forgiveness. How can one forgive, be forgiven if they've never heard? But when we take the gospel, when we speak, when we proclaim the good news of Christ's coming and his death and his resurrection, we offer the opportunity of forgiveness to the world. And when individuals trust Jesus for forgiveness, we can rightly and confidently tell them your sins are forgiven. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus, sorry, this is the right, the wrong verse. If we confess our sins, there we go, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We can speak that to repentant people. Your sins are forgiven. It's good news. Is that good news? We are given the authority and responsibility to proclaim in Jesus' name the forgiveness of sins. Okay, now I I kind of approached this passage by starting at the ending. So we're going to go back to the beginning now, to verse 19. Because I think we need to end with some hope and some encouragement. Because I just kind of laid on you a pretty heavy job description. This is what God has called us to do. Go be missionaries, go suffer, have fun. But there's hope here, and it's hope that Jesus gives his disciples before he says any of this. Verse 19, on the evening of that day, this is the day of the resurrection, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. 
And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So evident in this encounter is the graciousness of Christ, I think. The graciousness of a resurrected Jesus in appearing to his troubled and frightened disciples. He is showing them the reality that he has truly overcome death. Okay, so the risen Lord, Jesus, appears in the room among them, and he shows them his wounds, his hands, and his side. The risen, or excuse me, Jesus Christ himself rose from the dead. It was his real physical body. He really came into the room. He really stood among them. He was truly the man Jesus who had been crucified three days earlier. And he was just as human now, maybe more human. He was just as human after the resurrection as he was before he died. And he proves it to them. Show them, touch, see, look, here I am. And I won't get into whether or not Jesus walked through a locked door or the disciples opened it to him. We don't know. The story doesn't make it clear. The main point is that it's only because of the bodily resurrection of Jesus that God raised him from the dead, and in that that he conquered death, that the gospel makes any sense and has any power. Without the resurrection, our faith is just silly. And the mission that Jesus is about to send them on would be pointless if Jesus had not risen from the dead. So here's the risen Lord saying, I am alive. It's the very foundation of our message. It's the very foundation of our mission. And it's a reality that is able to eliminate our fears. And the first thing it gives us to replace our fear is peace. So notice that Jesus says to them in verse 19 and 21, he says, peace be with you twice. And if you count verse 26, which is the story with Thomas, he says it to him three times. Peace be with you. Why does he repeat himself? Did he, did he think that they didn't hear him the first time and he needs to say it again? I think the answer is obvious. In verse 19, we see that they were terrified. They locked the doors because of fear of the Jews. Right? Their master and teacher, their, their Lord, the guy they'd been following and learning from and given themselves to, just a few days earlier, had been betrayed, arrested, falsely accused, put on trial, convicted, cruelly tortured, hung on a cross and died, all within a few hours. And if you were following him, if you were one of that guy's posse, one of his disciples, wouldn't you expect that his enemies and murderers would come after you next? Let's get rid of all of them. I think we can relate to this because I think that fear is usually what keeps us from living as missionaries. Fear is what keeps us from living as missionaries. And so Jesus greets them with what would have been a very normal, common Hebrew greeting, shalom. Shalom, peace to you. But here it's more than a simple greeting. It's actually a declaration of what Jesus has done for them and what he has won for them through his death and resurrection. In Christ, peace or shalom becomes reality for us. He's created for us peace with God. He has released us from the fear of death because of his resurrection. And as Jesus had promised just before he got killed, In John chapter 14, verse 27, he says to them, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. 
Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Did I just go out? Did you lose me? Can you hear me? Oh, I'm good? Okay, sorry. In verse chapter 16, verse 33, there it is. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So through his resurrection, Jesus offers peace in exchange for fear. And it's not a peace like the world gives. The world gives and it goes away. The world gives and takes it back. Jesus gives it forever. Jesus has won us peace through his resurrection, but he's also won for us joy in the place of fear. Verse 20, then the disciples were glad, it says, when they saw the Lord. So having now seen the resurrection for themselves, their fear, as Jesus has promised, turns to joy. John 16, 20 and 22. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. You have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. So the very presence of the risen Jesus. Could you imagine him walking in the room right now, showing us his hands in his side and comforting us and saying, Peace, my people, be at peace. Wouldn't your fears melt away? Wouldn't your sorrows be replaced with joy? Wouldn't his presence give you that joy and that confidence to speak his name, to proclaim without fear? Well, guess what? He has promised us his presence. I will not leave you as orphans. I will not leave you alone. I will be with you. I will send you a helper who will be with you and empower you and give you all that you need. And lo, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Christ is with us in the room, even now. He's with you as you go into the world. So I just want to point out three things by way of takeaway before we finish up here. The first is just a reminder that our identity is that we are all missionaries. If you follow Jesus, you are a missionary everywhere, all the time. You're not off the clock. It's who you are. You're a missionary at work, at school, at practice, when you're home. Whether you're on the clock or off the clock, you're a missionary in your neighborhood and wherever you go in this world. Mission is our task and the gospel is our message. We're all missionaries. But fear is the thing that holds us back, I think, from being dependent, obedient missionaries like Jesus was. The antidote that Jesus offers to fear is hope through the reality of his resurrection and peace through his faithful presence with us and joy. And honestly, I believe these things, peace, hope, joy, that all these things are best experienced when we actually live on mission, when we actually go, when we actually speak, when we actually represent Christ wherever we're at. And then finally... Spiritual power is what mission requires. Spiritual power comes when the Spirit is allowed access to do His work in our midst. Well, how do we give the Spirit access? We do it by going. And we do it by praying. We go and we pray. A missional church is a going church. A missional church is a praying church. A praying church is a spirit-filled church. 
Spiritual power comes through prayer. And prayer is an absolute necessity as we live on mission, doing what Jesus has saved and sent us to do. And I believe that a faithful church is a praying church. A missional church is a praying church. And we can only become a praying church by doing what? Praying. Yes, by praying together. And let me just take this opportunity to give you a shameless plug Some of us gather together every Wednesday night at 5 o'clock to pray. To pray for this church. To pray together. To exalt Jesus. To worship together. And we invite you to come. If we're ever going to be a praying church, we must pray together. And if we're ever going to become a missional church, we have to pray. We've got to talk to Jesus. We've got to listen to him. We've got to come as his kids together to our Father and say, Father, where are you sending us? Where will, you, where will we go? How can we know? How can we be with you and serve you and bring you glory? Come on Thursday, 5 o'clock. We'll make room for you. It'll be fun. Don't worry. Nobody bites. You don't have to pray aloud if you don't want to. Okay, as we come to the Lord's table this morning, we come with all this in mind, knowing that Jesus was the great missionary, the one who was sent from his father to us to give his life for us that we might have forgiveness of sins. So we come to this table reminded of that, reminded of his body broken and his blood poured out. These elements are simply a a reminder of that. And as we come, we celebrate that. We give God praise and thanks for that. But we don't go forgetting that and just going about our lives. We go taking that message to the world. There are several stations up here in the front. You can come as you would like. Jonas is going to play some just instrumental music in the background as you come and take the elements. You can come by yourself. You can come with your family. You can grab somebody in the pew next to you who might be alone and take them and come and celebrate the Lord's Supper together. But as we do that, let me pray. Father, as we do come to you this morning, As we've come to you through Jesus Christ, we are dependent upon his righteousness. We're dependent upon the intercession of our Lord, who prays for us even now, intercedes for us even now, who supports us with strength even now, ready to send his spirit to empower us to pray, to empower us to go to empower us to serve and obey you. And Jesus, we are desperate, needy, dependent people. We can do nothing, Jesus, without you. And so I myself am convicted this morning, God, because so often I'd rather keep it to myself than proclaim it to others. I'd rather stick to myself than show love to others that make me uncomfortable, make me go outside of of my comfort zone where I don't want to go. But Lord, you've sent us into those places because you yourself have gone into those places. So Jesus, would you send us as a church, would you find us open and ready and listening and desiring to go where you would send us? May we be your missionaries for your glory. It's in your name and for your glory that we pray. Amen. Thank you.